And so today we're beginning this new series as we look at the life of the early church, the very first followers of Jesus. And we'll be asking ourselves the question, what can we learn from their example for our lives today? And we'll be doing this by journeying together through the first few chapters of a book in the Bible that is entitled The Acts of the Apostles. And today we're launching right in to the first chapter of that book. It's the launch pad for the entire book. It's an introduction to all that is to come. And as we go through this first chapter, we discover that this book is a sequel. It's the continuation of something that's come before. We learn that the disciples receive instruction from Jesus and are given a task to do. They need to be prepared. They need to be equipped. And finally, we learn there is more to come. There will be a further sequel. And to help us navigate our way through this chapter, I think it's helpful to see it in three main sections. In the first five verses, there is a sketch uh, of the initial outline of the book. Then in the next section, verses six through to 11, the author fills out some more of the detail. And finally, in the remainder of the chapter from verse 12 through to the end, there's a focus in on a particular episode in this introductory story. Now, I don't know if, like me, you sometimes watch those television series in which uh, successive episodes begin with something along the lines of previously on and the title of the show and then give a resume of the story so far, the highlights, the key points. Well, this book begins in much the same way. The author, Luke, jumps right in by reminding us of what he has told us in his first book. That first book was the Gospel of Luke, an account of the life of Jesus from a few months before his birth, right through to his death and resurrection back into new life. And that book ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. Jesus was taken up into heaven. And we ask, is that the end of the story? The answer is no. Luke has a sequel. And he begins this sequel by telling us that the first part described all that Jesus began to do. And the key word in this first verse is began. It's a hinge. The Gospels tell what Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts relates what he continued and continues to do and teach through the agency of his witnesses. And with this simple declaration, Luke is emphasising the unity and continuity between the story of Jesus and the story of the beginning of the church. So here's a key idea to grasp at the outset. Jesus continues his ministry through the spirit at work in us. And so we read on to find that the disciples receive their instructions from Jesus, that they need to be prepared and equipped. But before we dig into that in more detail, we skip 
to the end. And we see there will be a further sequel there in verses 9 through 11. There's more to come. Perhaps the best is yet to come. Jesus will return. The disciples are given the assurance that Jesus can and that he will return in the same way that they see him go. This is the background of hope against which they and consequently us, we are to act as the witnesses to Jesus. Jesus said the gospel must first be preached to all nations before the end can come. Luke is really excited about this story he is telling. He is trying to communicate something of that excitement and I hope we'll be excited too as we go through these next few weeks and see what God is doing. But as we get excited that we may communicate that fresh sense of excitement to others as we continue to retell the story, bringing it up to date in the life of the church today and in our lives. So let's dive in. The disciples receive their instructions from Jesus, we learned. Effectively, he says to them, this is what you need to know and here's what I need you to do. After being raised from the dead, we read, but before being taken up into heaven, Jesus spends time teaching his disciples. What, we ask, is he teaching them? Luke believes this to be so significant that he repeats it three times. It's there at the end of his first book, Luke chapter 24. And it's here twice in this chapter. Briefly, here in the introduction to the introduction, in verses 3 to 5, and more fully in verses 6 through to 11. What is the subject of this teaching? It's the kingdom of God. He's preparing them for what is to come. And I think Lloyd Ogilvy help, explains it helpfully in these words. He writes, the risen Christ coupled his teaching about the kingdom with his promise to return in power. It is not surprising that he continued to teach what had been the central focus of his life, message and ministry. He began his ministry declaring that the kingdom was at hand. The establishment of it in people's minds and hearts was his daily purpose. For Jesus, the kingdom meant the absolute reign and rule of God. Being born again was declared the qualification of entering it. He made that abundantly clear to Nicodemus. We read that in John chapter 3. Only by beginning life all over, he writes, with a complete surrender, could anyone experience the promise that the kingdom of the Lord's reign and rule would be within him or her? And he goes on to write, Jesus said we were to seek first the kingdom and then everything else that we would need would be provided. We offer the Lord no place if it is second place. 
The natural result of putting the Lord at the centre of our wills is that the kingdom's priorities become our goals. The kingdom is then both among and in the midst of us. It is first within, then between us and others, and then in all our affairs. Nothing can be omitted from its sweeping inclusiveness. It is the Lord's strategy for life. So how is all this to happen? Having impressed upon his disciples his teaching about the kingdom of God, he draws it all together in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. This is to be their primary task and the power would be given specifically for this purpose, to be witnesses. So let's think for a moment about that word witness. It means one who gives a solemn account of what he has seen, heard or knows. The word in Greek is martus and our word martyr comes from the same root, denoting someone who bears testimony for another person or for some cause with his or her death. That has happened to many Christians throughout the years and it continues perhaps in increasing measure to this day. Now, we may not be called to pay that ultimate cost, but I believe we must be ready and willing should that time come. And in the meanwhile, we should not miss the more direct and immediate application for our own lives. We are to die to ourselves and to our control over our privacy and schedules. And we are to become available to share by life and action what Christ means to us and can mean to others. Wherever life leads, we will find that there are people whose lives are being prepared mysteriously by the Holy Spirit, waiting for that moment of meeting the Saviour or of growing in him because he arranged for us to be in the right place at just the right time. And how does this work out? in practice. As witnesses we speak of these things to others but we are also called to embody them in our lives, our very lives becoming a witness to the kingdom of God. We live life as Jesus lived, doing the things he did and that he therefore continues to do through us communicating the truth of who God is, comforting the brokenhearted, releasing the captives, freeing the oppressed, healing minds, emotions and bodies, loving without limits. Now, secondly, to do this, the disciples need to be prepared. Jesus effectively says, don't go rushing off. Wait for my timing. There is something else that I need to give you. In fact, someone else. 
Jesus instructs them to wait in Jerusalem. Now, after the death of Jesus, they're scattered back to the region of Galilee in the north. Now they're back in Jerusalem and Jesus tells them that this is where the next stage of his mission, the next stage of God's great plan of redemption is to be played out. The disciples pick up on what he has been teaching them about the kingdom of God, but they haven't quite grasped the full picture. They knew well the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, the promised and chosen one of God. And they recognised Jesus to be that Messiah. But they saw him as the victorious king rather than the suffering servant. They had not yet grasped the fullness of it. How does Jesus respond? He tells them that there are things that are simply none of their business. It is not for you, he says, to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce translates the Greek of that as it does not belong to you to know. In other words, it is not your concern. Our area of responsibility does not extend to knowledge of the times or seasons. Jesus gives no direct answer. The kingdom is to be restored to Israel. But when? That's God's secret, not for human speculation. And so rather than indulging in this speculation, the disciples need to focus on the matter at hand. Their given task of being witnesses. So too for us. Now elsewhere, Jesus uh, encourages or perhaps even exhorts his disciples to uh, chastises them to, you know, to understand the times or the signs of the times. So there's something going on here. What can we learn? We need to dig deeper into this question of timing, I believe. And there are two words used here in Greek, chronos and kairos. Chronos denotes the length or duration of a time. Kairos denotes events or moments in time. So, for example, chronos will be used to describe the length of time of the germination, the sprouting, the cultivating and the growth of a field of grain. Kairos would be used for the actual time of harvesting or perhaps to pick uh, an illustration closer to home. This time we spend waiting in lockdown is chronos and kairos is the moment that we look forward to when lockdown eases or ends and we are able to begin meeting more freely together. Now that might be very interesting but what does it teach us? The thing is both kinds of time are under the control and the planning of the Lord's strategy. How long we must wait and what will be given at the end of the wait is up to him. Jesus has already given clear guidance on whom and what to expect. And so he reacts strongly when the disciples want to know the exact Kairos time. 
He knew that if they were to fully enter the new kingdom, they had to be people who could wait for the Lord's best and wait for his time. God is always on time. He is always in time. He is never late. He is never early. The chronos, the waiting time, the duration is for us, not for him. It's a time when we are made ready. Now, waiting can be really hard, can't it? Or am I the only one who finds that God often moves more slowly than I expect or want him to? Despite those occasional times when he surprises us and acts really rather suddenly. It perhaps doesn't help that we are surrounded by, immersed in a culture that leads us to expect, indeed to want everything immediately, yesterday even. But God waits until we are able to embrace the answer he gives. And I think Jesus may be saying here to his disciples and to us that the power of his spirit will be entrusted to those people who can accept his authority over timing. But we can learn something else. How do the disciples make use of this waiting time? Well, they gathered together and they devoted, devoted themselves to prayer. We read in verse 14. If the Holy Spirit is the divine gift that empowers and guides the church, then the corresponding attitude of the human heart towards God must be prayer. It is as the church prays that it receives the spirit. However, there were things that they could do while waiting in anticipation and prayer. We read that they had a concern to see the scriptures being fulfilled. It was a theme they returned to time and time again in these early days of the church, as we'll see in the weeks to come. And so they saw the appointment of a successor to Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus and then took his own life as a task at hand. And we too will find that as we wait in expectation and prayer, our situation and circumstances present things that we need to attend to. But all the while keeping the greater context, the larger picture in view. Our call to be witnesses and asking that question, Lord, what is it that you have specifically placed before me, before us today, for which we still need to wait? And then thirdly and finally, Jesus says, you're going to need some help. So I'm going to send someone. To be effective as witnesses, we need the continual outpouring of the Spirit. Back to verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. We learned that this was to be their primary task and that the power would be given specifically for this purpose to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit's power is given for witness. The dynamic power of the Holy Spirit will be given in constant flow as long as we are engaged about that business. We are to be conduits or channels, not reservoirs or holding tanks. 
as an illustration, think of a flowing river. A flowing river purifies itself. Contrast that with a swamp. A swamp has inlets, but no outflow. And I suggest that perhaps the Lord's power will not be squandered on us for long, if at all, if we refuse to be channels of his grace as witnesses. And let's also be clear that power here means supernatural power of the quality revealed in Jesus' own life. Why do we need that kind of power? Well, to be redeemed, forgiving people, to love without limit certainly needs the power of the Spirit. But also, as Jesus taught, signs and wonders confirmed his authority and his teaching. And we will see that the same is true for the early church. And perhaps, I suggest, should be true for us, something to explore in the weeks to come. So Jesus calls us to be his witnesses, to testify to who he is. We wait for his timing, but make use of this time of waiting. And we're not on our own. The spirit is with us and in us. And maybe, just perhaps, this all feels a bit overwhelming. But Jesus has promised that power will come upon us. And what could be more exciting than that? Than life lived in the kingdom of 